Well, if you have a Bible with you this morning, I do want to invite you to open it to John chapter 6. Uh, we've been in John chapter 6 for a few weeks now. We're actually taking a second run at uh, a passage in John 6 this morning. We're going to be focusing on verses 35 to 59 of John 6. But even with that, uh, I'll just say I won't be able to treat all of those verses in great detail. But while you are locating that, let me introduce you to Steve. Truth is, you already know him or someone just like him. The person you know might not be a Steve. They might be a Stephanie or maybe it's a Tommy or Tammy or any other name. But you probably know someone just like Steve. Steve was born into a Christian family. His parents were committed followers of Jesus. Steve's siblings both became followers of Jesus as well and remained that way throughout their lives. Steve went to church and to Sunday school. He made his own profession of faith at a Christian camp. He was active in the church's youth group. He got baptized. He was discipled by the church's youth pastor. He prayed. He read his Bible. He managed to avoid the usual pitfalls of teenage life. But after graduation from high school, Steve fell in with a different crowd in college. They asked questions that challenged his faith, told him he was naive for believing in Jesus. Steve soon stopped attending church. He declared himself to be an atheist or at least agnostic. I mean, he couldn't be sure. But he now harbors resentment towards his parents and others who sought to control him with their Christian faith. Steve's lifestyle is far from Christian. He drinks too much. He's had a string of live-in relationships. He's 40 now. He lives by the motto of the one who dies with the most toys wins. Now, the specifics might be different, but we all know people just like this. People who once professed to be Christians, but now want nothing to do with following Jesus. What are we supposed to make of people like that? How should we think of them in terms of salvation or in relation to salvation? Now, historically, there have been three main ways that Christians have thought about this. There's firstly the position adopted by most Pentecostal Assemblies of God, Methodist, and Mennonite churches, plus a host of independent churches. According to this understanding, Steve or Stephanie once possessed genuine faith and along with it salvation, but is now apostatized. Their sins were forgiven. They were genuinely saved, but they have now forfeited their salvation. Now, we may not like labels, but we could fairly label this the Arminian position, named after the 16th century Dutch theologian Jacob Arminius. In regards to the question of salvation, the Arminian position is that you can possess genuine salvation, but lose it. The second position, this one's held by many dispensationalists, some Baptists, and many independent churches. They would insist that once Steve was saved, he was forever saved. Even though he walked away from his faith and repudiated Jesus, he's still secure in the arms of his heavenly Father and will, regardless of how he lives and dies, end up in heaven for eternity. Now, we should exhort Steve to return to the Lord and live a life of obedience, but while he will lose his rewards, he will not lose his salvation. And we can label this the antinomian position, 
Antinomianism is a combination of two Greek words that together mean against the law. The idea is that you can live against the law and still, in fact, be a Christian because you made a decision somewhere. There's a third position found amongst more Reformed churches. This position is sometimes labeled as Calvinism because of its connection with John Calvin, the Protestant reformer. And those who hold to a Reformed or Calvinistic view of salvation look at Steve and draw one of two conclusions. Some would say that Steve did genuinely come to faith at a young age. He's currently living in a sinful state. But if he is truly a Christian, then the Spirit of God that indwells him will convict him. He will repent and return to a right relationship with God. Others within that same Reformed tradition would say that while Steve did make a profession of faith at a young age, it was not a genuine profession of faith. He may have been moved by the coaxing of his parents or the emotionalism of a week at camp or a kind of Christian peer pressure. He may have been self-deceived about the state of his relationship with God. He may have deceived others, but he never possessed genuine salvation in the first place. His faith was spurious. Now listen, I know that's a bit of a long introduction to this passage, but I think it's important for us to think long and hard about the nature of our salvation. Is it something we can gain and lose? Or is it something that is secured for us? And that is just one of the questions worth exploring out of the passage that is before us. So let me now read the passage. We're in John chapter 6. We're going to read verses 35 to 59. And this is what it says. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is, is not this Jesus? The son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know, how does he now say, I've come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they will be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread. It came down from heaven. If everyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. 
As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Well, this is a loaded passage. We spent last, uh, last week looking at the bread of life specifically and what that means to partake of the bread of life. But today we're going to look at the nature of our salvation from this passage and what we learn about it. And I want us to consider that under four headings or categories. And I would say, firstly, we learn about God's sovereignty. This is a theme that we see all through this passage, and we see it most clearly in verses 37 and 44. Verse 37 says this, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And then verse 44 says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, there is a chain of events that is clearly articulated in those verses in what Jesus says. And that chain of events can be described as follows. Number one, the Father draws some people to come to Jesus. Number two, all those who are drawn or given by the Father will come to Jesus. And number three, whoever comes to Jesus will not be cast out. This means that salvation from beginning to end is the work of God. He is the one who initiates it, and he is the one who completes it. He determines, he calls, he draws, he preserves Till the end. Now, this idea might be something that you struggle with or at least struggle to understand. How do you make up your mind about these different positions? Maybe you've heard the joke about the guy who got to heaven, discovered there were actually two lines one for Calvinists and one for Arminians. And the guy was like, Well, I'm not really sure if I was chosen by God or if I chose him. Could never really quite decide. I guess I'll go to the chosen line. So he gets to the front and he's asked, well, how did you get here? And he says, well, I just decided I should get in this line. Oh, you just decided. Oh, well, you're in the wrong line. You need to go to that other line. So he goes to the other line. Eventually he makes it to the front and is asked, and how did you get here? And he says, well, I was sent here. The reply is, well, you were sent here, then you belong in the other line, right? And some of you feel kind of like that. I mean, you don't really know. You don't really care, maybe even. Did you choose choose Jesus or did he choose you? You're just going to be glad to make it to heaven, right? And I totally understand that, but I do think there is a reason that the nature of salvation is revealed to us. And it is clearly revealed to us. Jesus says no one can come to the Father unless the Father draws him. And I'm convinced we don't meditate on that enough. And when we understand that we did not come to Jesus apart from the Father drawing us to him, it does two things for us. The first thing it does is it strips us from our pride. See, our story... Our testimony is not, well, you know, I used to live my life in such and such a way, but then I decided to make some changes, 
and now I live for God. Our story is not about how we figured out the key to life. Our story is about how God in his mercy reached down and saved us. He's the one who made his grace irresistible to us. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And even when we feel like we've made a decision to follow Jesus, we should understand there was a prior decision made by God to draw us to Jesus. So I have this memory of watching a a Peter Sellers movie when I was a kid. It it wasn't one of the Pink Panther movies. I don't remember what movie it was. I don't actually remember what it was about. I don't remember very much about it. But I remember this one scene, and for whatever reason, it stuck with me. In that scene, Peter Sellers, his character is at a party, he's at a club or something, and this woman walks in, and she is surprised to see him there. And she asks him, what are you doing here? He responds by saying that he followed her there. She's a bit puzzled by that answer and then says, but if you followed me here, then how did you get here before me? And he says, well, I followed you very quickly. That's actually how it works in regards to salvation. God was there before us. There was a decision made before our decision. We may feel like we came to Jesus because of our own decision, but actually God was drawing us. He followed us very quickly. So we ought not, have, ought not to have any pride about it. The second thing that the knowledge that we've been chosen by God should do for us is it should fill us with gratitude. Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus begins with a list of all the blessings that we have in Christ, all the riches that belong to us as Christians, as God's people. And that list begins like this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Reflecting on the fact that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that he predestined us for adoption to be his children, should fill our hearts with gratitude. Now, maybe when you hear that, you actually think, well, you know, thinking that you've been chosen by God leads to pride. It doesn't. It shouldn't. especially when we read what God says about those he chose. See, we may not understand why God chose us. It should be enough to know that he has chosen us. Uh, Let me take you back to the Old Testament, to what God says about the Israelites, God's chosen people. In Deuteronomy, it says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession." out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth. I mean, that sounds pretty special. And then God says, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for for you were the fewest of all peoples. 
But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So why did God choose Israel? Well, not because they were great or powerful. Passage actually doesn't tell us specifically why God chose Israel. It just tells us that he set his affections on them and that they were his treasured possession. We encounter that same idea in the New Testament. In a passage that is a gut punch to anyone thinking that God chose them because they're so special, the Apostle Paul says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. See, understanding that you've been chosen by God does not lead to pride. It should lead to humility and to gratitude that God in His grace drew us to himself. So the very first thing we need to understand about the nature of salvation is God's sovereignty, that he is sovereign over all of it. The second thing we need to understand is connected to human responsibility. So it would be a mistake to think that because God is sovereign in matters of salvation, that means that humans have no responsibility. The language of invitation... And response is found all through this passage. Jesus says, come, look, believe, eat, drink, feast. And those words emphasize the need for a response on our part. But in the passage, what kind of response did people make? Listen again to verses 35 and 36. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And then verse 36 says, But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. The crowd Jesus was talking to, they saw what he did, but they did not believe. And then verses 41 and 42 give us some more information. And those verses say, so the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? So they looked at his origin story and they didn't buy it, right? We know his mom and dad. But here's the question. Who was responsible for their unbelief? Well, they are. They rejected Jesus based on their assumptions about him, and they will be judged on that basis. So God is both the sovereign Lord and the righteous judge. And you see God's sovereignty and human responsibility both on display. Now, I'm pretty sure I've walked through some of this with you before, but I just want to highlight some of the places where we see God's sovereignty and human responsibility placed side by side. 
One of the clearest or one of the classic texts on this comes from the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. Now, if you know the story, then you know that Joseph's brothers were jealous of him. They sold him into slavery. They told their father that Joseph had been attacked by a wild animal and killed. But then they had sold him into slavery. And Joseph eventually rose to a position of prominence and power in Egypt. And when Israel experienced a famine, they came down, Joseph's brothers came down to Egypt in search of food. Joseph initially hid his identity from his brothers, but eventually revealed it. And so the whole family made their way down to Egypt. But then their father died. And the brothers start to worry, well, maybe Joseph is going to pay us back for the evil we did to him in selling him into slavery. And here was Joseph's response. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And there you see the interplay between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. The brothers acted according to their will. They acted according to their nature. But God was sovereign over the whole thing because he had a plan in place. We find another example in Isaiah chapter 10. This passage is less well known, but maybe it's even clearer God says this, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. The staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation, I send him. And against the people of my wrath, I command him to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. But he does not so intend. And his heart does not so think, but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off the nations, not a few. Now, the context of those verses is God's discipline of Israel through the nation of Assyria. Assyria is referred to the rod of God's anger, God's spanking sticks, so to speak. God's using them to discipline the Israelites. He sends them against Israel, commands them to carry out his judgment. But while they are God's chosen means of discipline, they acted of their own accord. Their intention wasn't to discipline the Israelites so that they might return to God. Their intention was to wipe out Israel. Are they accountable for that? Well, verse 12 of that chapter goes on to say this, When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. So there you see God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And what we see is that God's sovereignty doesn't in any way diminish human responsibility. The New Testament reveals the same thing. Listen to what we find in Acts chapter 4. There it says, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your, hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So nothing that happened to Jesus happened apart from God's will or God's plan. But you also see that Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the people of Israel acted according to their will, their desire, their nature. And they will be held accountable for what they did. 
So how should we think about this interplay between God's sovereignty on the one hand and man's responsibility on the other hand? Well, one of the books I reread in preparing for this message was G.I. Packer's book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. I would highly recommend it. And here's what Packer says about these two truths. He says, what the Bible does is to assert both truths side by side in the strongest and most unambiguous terms as two ultimate facts. This, therefore, is the position we must take in our thinking. Charles Spurgeon was once asked if he could reconcile these two truths to each other. I wouldn't try. He replied, I never reconcile friends. Friends, yes, friends. This is the point we have to grasp. In In the Bible, divine sovereignty and human responsibility are not enemies. They're not uneasy neighbors. They're not in an endless state of cold war with each other. They are friends and they work together. And this is what we ought to understand, that God is sovereign. He is he who draws people to himself. But those who reject him will be held accountable for their rejection of Jesus. And this leads to a third truth that we ought to acknowledge about the nature of our salvation, which is that in some sense it remains a genuine mystery. Now, I don't have a specific verse for this. I just want to say that I think it's important for us to remember there are lots of things that we don't understand. We ought to understand that God is sovereign in matters of salvation. We ought to understand that humans are responsible for their actions. The precise way all of this works together is something of a mystery. And it's okay not to have everything in in a neat little package with a bow on top and say, yes, I understand all of it perfectly. In thinking about this, I, I read an article this week. Paul Sutter is an astrophysicist at Ohio State University. He was asked a question on space.com about the nature of light. The question was, is light a wave or a particle? Here was his answer. Is it a wave or is it a particle? This seems like a very simple question. Waves are very very distinct phenomena in our universe as are particles. And we have different sets of mathematics to describe each of them. So if we want to go about describing the entire universe, this appears to be a very handy classification scheme, except when it isn't. And it isn't in one of the most important aspects of our universe, the subatomic world. When it comes to things like photons and electrons, the answer to the question, do they behave like waves or particles, the answer is yes. Now, if you didn't catch it, his answer to the question, is light a wave or a particle? His answer is, it's, there, it's both, sort of. And I would say when we come to this type of issue about God's sovereignty and human responsibility, there's a sense in which we say, there, there's a bit of a mystery to this. We know God is sovereign. We know humans are responsible. So should we emphasize God's sovereignty or should we emphasize human responsibility? The answer is both. And the reason I point out this mystery part is because there is a phenomenon known as cage-stage Calvinism. This is where you discover the truth of God's sovereignty, and you wonder how you ever could have missed it, and you wonder how anyone else could miss it. So soon everything gets filtered through the lens of election and predestination, But even Kelvin was careful to say, don't get your head lost in the abyss of predestination. K. 
Calvin warned against indulging in curious inquiries about eternal predestination because he knew some people would say, well, am I chosen? I mean, am I chosen? Are they chosen? Am I elect? Are they elect? How do I know? Here's what Calvin says. He says, they are madmen who seek their own salvation or that of others in the whirlpool of predestination, not keeping the way of salvation which is exhibited before them. And then he says this, faith is a sufficient attestation of the eternal predestination of God. Do you know what he's saying there? He says, look, don't, don't think for yourself or for others. Well, in eternity past, did God choose them? Are they on the list? Are they predestined? Calvin says you'll make yourself mad, crazy, thinking like that. Because you do not have access to the eternal recesses of God's mind. What you do have access to are the promises of God. And the promises of God tell us that all that the Father gives to Jesus will come to him. And that everyone who comes to him, he will raise up on the last day. If you have faith, you believe you belong to Jesus. This takes us to the final thing we learn about here, which is a Christian's security. Now, this is where we started with that hypothetical questions about Steve. But the importance of of this is actually far more than just hypothetical. Should a Christian have a sense of security about their salvation? Well, what does Jesus teach us here? Listen again to verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Jesus says, whoever comes to him, he will never cast out. Now, I don't know if you played Red Rover as a kid. I don't know if kids still play games like that, but the rules of the game were simple. You had a group of kids on one side of the field, and you had another group of kids on the other side of the field. And the one group would kind of all link arms or join hands and try to form this impenetrable line. And then they would call someone from the other side of the field to come over. Red Rover, Red Rover, we call Leover. And if my name was called by that, I had to try to run with all my might, all my speed, all my weight, right? And try to bust through that line. Sometimes you'd make it, and sometimes you you wouldn't. And if you didn't make it, you would be sent back to the other side. That is not how salvation works. If Jesus calls you and draws you and you genuinely come to you, he is not going to send you back. He is not going to cast you out. Kevin DeYoung uses this example of Red Rover as a wrong way to think about election. He says this, So don't think election works that way. When somebody preaches the gospel and you're, I'm coming to you, Jesus. And it's like the father and son are holding a Red Rover line. Sorry, you didn't make it. Go back. It's not like that. He says it's more like a tug of war. And God always wins the tug of war. And if you're on the end, somebody's pulling you, drawing you, pulling you and drawing you, and finally you come, he's not going to say, now go away. See, that's the picture. 
everyone who comes to Jesus will not be cast out. How did you get there in the first place except God drew you? Now, verse 39 is equally clear. Verse 39 says, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Look, this is the will of God, that Jesus will lose nothing. He will lose no one who is genuinely his. So to deny that a believer's salvation is kept secure by God is to deny the truth of these verses. To deny this is to deny that the is to say that the possibility exists that Jesus will reject some that the Father has given to him and that the sovereign will of God can be thwarted. If that were the case, Jesus should have said shouldn't have said, I will raise them up on the last day. What he should have said is, I hope to raise them up on the last day, or I might raise them up on the last day. But what Jesus said is, I will raise them up on the last day. Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 10. He says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. No one is able to snatch them out of the hand of the Father or out of the hand of Jesus because he holds them securely. This is why we can confidently say that our salvation is secure. So the question is, how are we supposed to live in the light of this? So let me take you back to the options I laid out at the start. The first was that of the Arminian, who would say, yes, you can lose your salvation. To embrace this means to live in fear. Fear that maybe something you did last night or last week or last year has somehow put your salvation in jeopardy. And your salvation in the end then becomes about your performance. But what about the error of the antinomian, the person who says, well, it doesn't matter how you live. I mean, as long as you prayed that prayer or checked off that box, at some point you can just do whatever you want. They don't phrase it so much as the perseverance of the saints, but as once saved, always saved. That's not the biblical position either. The biblical position is that the person who has genuinely been born again The person who is indwelt by God's Holy Spirit will endure to the end because God will keep them secure. So how should we live? Well, we should live in great confidence, not in our ability to perform, but in God's ability to keep us. And this ought to make a huge difference in the way we live. Now, we are all watching, as I said earlier, we're all watching what is unfolding in the Ukraine right now. There's lots of news coverage of what is happening there. I was encouraged to see some of the other videos surface online, the ones you don't see on mainstream media, videos of pastors preaching the gospel with boldness. Videos of Christians in a subway station in Kiev singing hymns of praise to God. They're in the midst of an invasion. What gives them the confidence to do that? Well, isn't it the knowledge of what Jesus says here in John chapter 6? 
that they're kept secure by God. I'm going to close by simply reading a number of verses from this passage. And as I do, I just want you to listen for two things. The confidence in knowing that we have eternal life, that it's already ours, and the certainty with which Jesus speaks of our resurrection. So listen to these verses. Verse 39. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If everyone eats, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Verse 54, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And then verse 58. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. You see, this is the confidence we ought to have. That because we have turned to Jesus, because we have responded to his call, his drawing in our life, we know that we will be raised up on the last day. And that gives us confidence to face whatever we might be facing in this world. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your sovereign grace, your grace that reached down to us, that drew us to yourself long before we had any intention of seeking you, finding you. And Lord, we pray that we would respond to your call in the right way. We pray that we would be your people, that we would live as your people. God, I pray that we would live with the confidence that comes from knowing that we have eternal life, that you will raise us up on the last day. And whether we're facing sickness or suffering or anything else beyond our control, we pray we would live and die with that confidence. We pray in Jesus' name.